Welcome to the Feeding and Leading Podcast, featuring Todd Fisher and Andy Taylor, a podcast for church leaders focusing on expository preaching, pastoral leadership, and ministry. Hey, everyone. We want to welcome you to a very special edition of the Feeding and Leading podcast. Um, I am Todd Fisher. I'm the executive director of Oklahoma Baptist. I am not joined on this podcast episode by Andy Taylor, who is usually here. Andy is uh, off traveling, and instead I have a guest host with me today. And the guest host is Chris Wall, who is the president of our state convention. Chris, how you doing, man? Man, I'm great, Todd. I guess it doesn't count that Andy was my roommate in college. <laughs> I don't know if that counts. Uh, I lived with him for a whole semester, uh, even shared a bunk bed, uh, not not the actual, you know, yeah, shared yeah. a bed. Thanks for that sorta. distinction. Let me just clarify. And then, uh, yeah, then later on, we're going to have another supplemental uh, episode where you just Tell some good, good stories. I have some, Andy. but I'm but he, sure I'm afraid he would mention some of mine, so I'll be. Chris, honest. tell us about yourself, just real quick. Well, I'm the pastor at First Baptist Church of Owasso. I've been in Oklahoma my entire ministry and a uh, long time in youth ministry in Oklahoma. But now, uh, I guess uh, almost 12 years ago, I went to First Baptist Owasso in the Tulsa area, and I'm thankful uh, for my church. I love what God al- allows us to do in Owasso and Tulsa, mm-hmm. and um, man, just uh, love. Love serving Oklahoma Baptist. I'm proud to be an Oklahoma Baptist, and I'm thankful for how we uh, cooperate together. Chris has done a phenomenal job being president of our state convention, winding up his second term now. Yep. And uh, you'll be glad to probably relinquish that we role. Hand come the November. baton, man. And, and there's, a, there's a reason that you do it in, uh, you hand the baton after two years, and I'm That's happy right. to do it. That's but right. It's been an honor. Well, hey, everyone. The reason that we are having this special supplemental episode of Feeding and Leading is we have a very, very special guest with us all the way from England, Dr. Peter Williams. Chris, why don't you introduce Dr. Williams to us? Yeah, Dr. Williams, it's an incredible opportunity for us, and and Peter, I'm so thankful that you're here. Dr. Williams is, uh, um, has contributed some incredible things to, to the world and to our world. And uh, if you have a, an ESV Bible, uh, he was a part of that translation and, and, uh, and a very important part of that translation. In fact, uh, he's written several books. One is Can We Trust the Gospels? Uh, he's got a brand new book coming out called The Surprising Genius of Jesus, What the Gospels Reveal about the greatest teacher. And I just hope that you check those books out. I, I used your book, Peter, I, I mentioned to you earlier today, uh, as, as my son was going out into the world, uh, as he was leaving my house, we went through your book, Can We Trust the Gospels? Because I wanted to just process that with him. And I want to thank you personally for writing that book and helping me disciple my own son and giving him confidence in the scriptures and pushing him to that. So thank you so much for speaking into Oklahoma Baptist today. And we are honored to have you. Well, it's great to be with you both. And thank you for that. Thank you, Peter. And tell us just a little bit about yourself, your, the title you hold and what you do. Yeah, tell so, us a little so bit about I, that. I'm principal and CEO of Tinder House in Cambridge, England. So that's not the same as Tinder House Publishers. It's Tinder House, right. which is a research and study center next to the University of Cambridge. 
in England and uh, people come from around the world to study there. We have the UK's best library of the Bible and we have a very missional focus where we are looking to help equip people to go out and serve the church. So uh, people are usually working at the doctoral level or above. We're not giving them qualifications, but we're providing a Christian community Mm. and study environment. And then we have initiatives on top of having that community to try and uh, get good research out. So we carry out research projects on the Old and New Testament and we sponsor people to come in from poorer parts of the world Mm. in order to get study opportunities as well. That's great. And uh, we're very thankful, grateful for you for the work you've done on the ESV translation and for those listening, uh, essentially Dr. Williams is is an academic expert on what we would call the field of the historicity, the authenticity, the credibility of the Bible, of the Scripture, and in particular, I would say the Gospels. You've written that book, so Dr. Williams is really a great and a, a great apologist about why we can trust the Scripture. So. We want, obviously, on Feeding and Leading, we want this this episode to be um, about pastors. That's primarily who's listening to this. And um, Dr. Williams, one of the things I think you could do to help Oklahoma pastors quite a bit is maybe just to help them with some of the common objections that a pastor hears from his church members regarding the authenticity, historicity, credibility of the Scripture. And uh, I kind of joked with you when we were talking about before we we started recording this. Um, pastors have too many church members that that watch too much Discovery Channel and Nat Geo and that kind of thing. And uh, you know, I remember when I was pastored every Easter, every Easter, I'd have a church member come up to me and say, "Pastor, I saw this show last night on TV, and they found the body of Jesus." You know, no, they didn't find a body of Jesus. What does your Bible say? The, the body of Jesus is not to be found. <laughs> He rose from the dead. So what I thought we would do in this episode is just um, have you respond to some of those common critiques or criticisms of the Bible that the average pastor hears, and maybe you could just share some things that a pastor could put in his toolbox that would help him when that church member comes up and says, uh, hey, this person I work with the other day says you can't trust the Bible because X, Y, Z. So I'm just going to start off with that and have you kind of respond kind of at a, a high level of just in general how, you, how a Christian, how a pastor could help someone respond to this. So let's start with, let's start with this one, um, the, the issue of the autographs mm-hmm. of Scripture. So when we say autograph, we mean the original document that uh, you know, was, was written for Paul as Paul dictated it to an amanuensis. Um, we do not have the original document to any of that, that that doesn't exist. So what we have are copies. So how would how would you respond to that when someone says, hey, you can't even trust the Bible because you don't even have what the Apostle Paul or Peter wrote? How would you respond to that? Yeah, thank you. Well, I mean, it's a question that it involves a bit of confusion because firstly, Christians don't need to have the original documents. Mm. We actually don't care about the original documents. I'm putting that in quite stark terms. What mm-hmm. I mean by this is um, in the Old Testament, God speaks the Ten Commandments from the mountain. Lots of people hear it. um, And he writes it down on stone tablets. 
And then Moses has the stone tablets and gets to the bottom of the mountain and he smashes them. Uh, does that destroy God's word? No, God's words uh, aren't destroyable uh, like that. They're indestructible. They are the words he spoke. So what we've got to distinguish is between the words that God spoke and the material that they're on. So mm. God's words are immaterial. And in the case of the scriptures, whether they're written on papyrus or leather, animal skin, uh, it's not that God breathed the animal skin or God breathed the papyrus. The papyrus is simply the thing carrying the words mm. and the words can't be destroyed. So if you take the beginning of John's gospel where it says, in the beginning was the word, those are the original words that uh, John wrote. There's no reason to think any otherwise and there's loads of evidence that he did. They are just as much from God if they're in neuron form, if they're in sound waves, uh, if mm. they're... Uh, mm. stored in electronic form or if they're on paper or leather they don't get destroyed when they're copied so that's one thing and the other thing i'd say about the whole question of copying is that um there were whole industries of copying in the ancient world because they didn't have uh the sort of tech that we have with our phones which uh copy now we speak to people on the telephone uh, very happily and even though we're hearing a copy of a copy of a copy of their voice it's, it's been relayed many many times before it gets to us we're confident in the copying process people who are listening to this podcast are able to listen to this podcast because of a copying process which gets it to them and um, scribes were just involved in that so like nowadays our society is built on the fact that um, trucks that transport food generally make it to their destination. Of course, it's possible that they might not, but our society depends on the fact that they do. And so ancient scribes generally copied well. They, they, they might, it's possible they miscopy, but most of the time they do it well. So there's absolutely no reason to think that the text of the Bible has changed in any substantial way, anything that uh, harms the message. Every reason to think exactly the opposite, that things have been well transmitted and you can, in fact, uh, trace the transmission of the Bible at every stage or the New Testament every stage uh, since the New Testament and the Bible, the Old Testament, a long way back. Mm. So one of, the, one of the arguments against the Scripture is what you just said about can we really trust the transmission process of the copying. One of the things that, that is commonly kind of said, said, I think, in defense of the Bible, and I'd love to hear you kind of just unpack it a little bit, is uh, is this idea of, of the number of ancient copies that are extant, and then also what the age of like the earliest copy is in relation to when the original would have been written. So commonly kind of quoted there is papyrus, I can't remember the number that's got the little part of John from the yeah Papyrus fifty two yeah Papyrus yeah. fifty two from the Beatty collection I think um, can you speak a little bit to that if we if we look at transmission of ancient texts in general does the evidence seem to kind of say the Bible holds its own compared to that how would you address yeah that? so it's not a question of uh, of, of better at one level, I would say most ancient texts have been well transmitted. We mm -hmm. could look at classical literature, uh, whether it's in Latin or Greek, and when things have been handed down, basically things are handed down uh, as a whole, and the same probably applies to Chinese literature, to ancient Indian literature, to Arabic literature, to the Quran, it applies to the Bible. But basically, most of the time, people copy ancient texts, and it gets passed down well. Now, with the Bible, we have an abundance of things, because 
uh, we actually have translations, not just the original mm. in the Greek and the Hebrew, uh, but people produce translations of these. So you can, uh, into many different ancient languages, so you, you can trace out a whole genealogy of how these things uh, relate. And there's no corner of uh, the ancient world where someone could make a change and that then affect everything else subsequently without that showing up. So basically things are well transmitted. Uh, the, you can make an argument from the fact that there are many manuscripts. So for the um, Gospels, you're going to be talking about a couple of thousand manuscripts for most of the time. Um, but it's not just about numbers, because actually, I think even if you only had one manuscript, you can make a good case mm -hmm. that it's been well transmitted. Mm -hmm. So I'd want to say there's more than you need. There are all sorts of texts that people believe have been well transmitted, which are only available in a very few copies. We have more with the, um, the New Testament, more with the Bible. And so I think there's every reason to have confidence in the copying process. It was just part of the culture then. Um, yes, it's, it's, it's something foreign to us, I think, today. Yes. And I also think that uh, it, it's, there's a logistical issue as well. If you wanted deliberately to change anything, um, even if you changed them in the copy, which is in your city, that doesn't change anything in the city next door or anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, it, it's very difficult to go around changing things. It's very expensive, particularly if you're writing on leather. Think of the number of animals you need mm -hmm. to have uh, mm -hmm. to produce a book. It's actually very expensive. It takes a lot of time. And so thinking that there was any large-scale falsification of text just doesn't make any more sense than if you were to sit and watch a particular uh, sporting game on your TV, thinking that someone is altering the images through um, CG imaging uh, that are coming into your television but not into your neighbors you know because mm. although theoretically it's possible the budget would have to be huge yeah. to do that and that's yeah. why you don't think they did that and and the budget to falsify texts in the ancient world would have had to been huge and for what purpose mm -hmm. you know people what money did anyone have to gain out of laying out many animal skins to falsify a text there's, mm -hmm. there's no particular uh motive to do that and it's amazing too not just scribal intentional alterations but like if they made an accident mm -hmm. or a mistake it's it's very fascinating to look at those ancient texts and see the little notes that the scribe has made you know like oh i i want to correct that that's really amazing too how you yeah, can track that and, and we can study that and there's an awful lot of, of data about that which uh, are telling us uh, that um, about what sort of mistakes are the most common and again they are not generally things that affect the meaning and certainly the the order of the stories in the Bible and their fundamental points stays the same mm -hmm. whatever uh, manuscript you're looking at. So another common objection that that people are going to hear is oh you can't trust the Bible because it's full of errors. Mm -hmm. Not I'm not just talking about scribal things now. I'm reading in the Bible uh, I'm trying to think of some common ones, you know. One one I used to hear all the time as a pastor was someone would hear about the um, uh, the the census, Second Samuel, First Chronicles. Mm -hmm. In one text, God God orders the census, and another text, Satan orders the census. Oh, there's a mistake, so you can't believe the Bible. How how generally do we do we defend uh, the inerrancy of Scripture? Yeah, so I think um, Scripture is often meant to be tricksy, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, that that is um, it is written so that we would seek God. Um, and rely on him. And what you have in a text like that where it says about um, 
both God and Satan doing something which brings about this uh, census is those two things are both compatible. Uh, more centrally in the New Testament, we have the teaching both that when Christ went to the cross, it was by God's plan and it resulted from Satan entering Judas Iscariot mm -hmm. to encourage him yeah. to betray Jesus. So um, this is not at all incompatible. In fact, there's a deeper truth about this that uh, Satan thinks that he is fully independent, sort of able to do what he likes uh, and so on. And actually, um, he's playing uh, into God's greater plan. Uh, and sometimes you, you <laughs> can, can see this uh, g going on uh, in sort of, I say, movies uh, where, where, where you can see that um, actually uh, one person is outwitted by another mm -hmm. <laughs> or something like that, 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 that um, God, yes, does outwit Satan. Mm -hmm. uh, Satan thinks he's, he's got, uh, you know, uh, control uh, and he hasn't. Yeah. You know, let me have, you know, I think it's interesting as you think about, you're always going to have to have questions, you'll deal with questions about, like, is it a Ahiza, his age in Chronicles? His age is different in two different texts. But, but you mentioned something several, uh, just a moment ago, about um, the message of the Bible doesn't mm. change. And so when it comes to the, the, the message of the Bible, one question I get a lot in our pluralistic society um, is, hey, we ought to, um, we ought to just, uh, reg we get that question of all religions are the same. It's all the same. You mm -hmm. know, we're all going to the same place. What makes Christianity unique? How would yeah. you describe the uniqueness of the message of Christianity when it comes to the pluralistic world? Yeah, so I want to address the very first bit of just about... Uh, number differences. Um, if you tell me your cell phone number and I miscopy one of those numbers, I'm probably not going to be able to contact you uh, because it's very hard to correct a number difference. And it's interesting me often when people are asking the question, is God speaking truthfully in the Bible, that they make reference to number differences between copies, which, remember, are the easiest thing to miscopy. If you just miscopy a letter within a sentence, you can normally correct it in your, your mind just by looking at it. So that's just one thing to say. What makes the Bible different? Well, it really is uh, the person of Jesus. That's, that's the fundamental difference. There are many other uh, things, uh, but he is at the center of it. Um, he is a, a person I don't think anyone could invent. Uh, he is utterly amazing. Um, and uh, the most brilliant and bravest character ever to walk this planet, the, planet, the noblest character, and one from whom we can all learn a lot. And uh, within the storyline of the Bible, he comes to show us who God is. He is God's son himself, and he comes to save us. And there's a difference between a religion which tells you you can work your way up to God and what happens with the message of Jesus, where it says the distance between you and God is too big for you to work your way up. He has to come down to save you. He has to die in your place, uh, taking the punishment that you deserve. Um, that is what uh, comes with uh, Jesus. And I think that's a very different message indeed. And just to springboard on that a little bit, um, you kind of brought it up there. Just the whole idea of inspiration. And yeah. I think sometimes you hear that too. Uh, you know, are these the words of God? Are these the words of man? How exactly did God use these men to be authors? 
We talked just a second about what, what inspiration is and what it isn't. Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't tend to use the word inspiration so much because it is a confusing word mm-hmm. uh, because people talk about Mozart being inspired, great right. poets being inspired, about something brilliant. Whereas what we're thinking about in the second uh, uh, Timothy 3 sense is words given by the breath of God. We're talking about God breathing out mm-hmm. words. That's the, the essential thing. And the claim there is that whatever the method that the human authors may have used, whether it's uh, sitting down or going out and researching or however it is, that when they produce those words, it's also true to say that God is the author of those words. God is the uh, one who's breathed those out. It's not about the method by which those words arrived on the page. It's about a claim about the result Mm -hmm. that God is as much the author of those words as the human. Good. Yeah, you know, um, uh, you, you've you've written the book. Can we trust the gospel? Summarize. Uh, I don't know if our pastors in Oklahoma have really gotten that book. Summarize that book, and then I want you to summarize a little bit of the book that you just have written. Yeah. So I look at the, the word trust, and I'm wanting people to see that. Um, we are, as human beings, we're dependent on each other. We use trust all the time. You don't trust, you die. Um, you have to trust people often in sources of foods and, and, and so on. And I'm not wanting to prove that the Gospels are um, uh, uh, provable by the, the, the standards that a history department might use. I'm rather asking, is it really rational to trust them? And I think we can make the argument they are. So I show the knowledge base of the Gospels. The Gospel writers clearly know a lot about the land of the Bible. They know about its geography, its tax system, where the land goes up and down. They know about the weather. They know about the plants. They know about the um, different social structures. They know about the year's calendar, what sort of things go on at different times. So they seem to have detailed knowledge from the land of Jesus, which is already a striking thing. That could happen if they actually come from that land and are close enough to the events to give that, uh, or if they've had really detailed conversations with that with people from the land. But we can also show not just in geography that they have to be close in time because they're giving people the right names for the time, uh, and we can see that they're, uh, as they report different Gospels, uh, the reports dovetail uh, with each other uh, in the sort of subtle ways that true independent reports often do. Uh, So all of those things come together um, with the nature of who Jesus is uh, to make it extremely plausible that these things actually happen. Now, someone might object um, to this on the basis that the the Gospels contain miracles and they can't believe miracles. But if you park that issue and simply say, if they they didn't contain the miracles, would you, under normal circumstances, find these texts to be trustworthy? The answer is absolutely yes, people would. Uh, It's only because they find that sort of uh, miraculous side um, unpalatable that people find reasons not to... uh, accept the Gospels. And, and talk about this for a second. Accepting the supernatural. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, how do you go about defending that today? What would you say to a skeptic on that? Well, it's very interesting. Um, we, we see this a lot in films uh, where an ordinary person is going about their life 
And then they have an experience, let's say it's in ET or something, where they meet something that's outside their experience. It blows their mind, but there is some sort of rational process by which you can accept that things are other than you thought they were. It sometimes <laughs> happened in a Marvel film or something where someone's not come across something before. Or a horror movie that has ghosts exactly. and supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. So we have this all of the time. We, we mm-hmm. have this in hundreds of films mm-hmm. where we see a normal person going about their life and then there is something outside of experience. So clearly, we all accept that there could be things that would happen to a person with normal experience could make, which would make them fundamentally question um, the rules of what is allowed to happen. Mm-hmm. And so I think to say miracles can't happen is just sort of um, presupposing uh, something. Uh, when people say miracles don't occur, what they're saying is, I haven't seen any miracle. Mm-hmm. Now, there is uh, the claim of about 200 million people on the planet today believe not that they've heard about a miracle, but they've actually experienced a miracle. Mm-hmm. So the idea that the only rational position could be that um, miracles don't occur is is rather odd. And I would want to say this. If you're colorblind uh, between red and green... You obviously can't see always the difference between red and green, but you know that there are all these people around you talking about that there is some difference. Mm -hmm. And so on that basis, you assume that this isn't some big con, uh, but that there really is something outside your experience, which is true. So the idea that I can't believe in a miracle unless I experience it myself is, is not rational. Actually, If you lived in a world where you were the only person who hadn't experienced a miracle and every single person you met said they believed in miracles, you would probably believe in miracles. Mm -hmm. So at at the end of the day, there are means by which we can accept miracles both on the basis of testimony and on basis of our own personal experience. And there's no uh, good grounds against that. Now, um, with the Gospels, what we've got is lots and lots of reports of miracles clustering around this one individual, uh, namely Jesus Christ. And he's an individual who lives a very special life, um, who seems to have lots of amazing teaching credited to him. Um, and it doesn't just happen to any old person. It happens to someone who um, seems to have a royal genealogy to come from this re- most remarkable people group, the, 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 the Jews, who, who dies at a particularly symbolic time, namely at the Passover, and it's said that he uh, rose again. All of those things cluster, and it's not just that they um, are weird things. It's not like paranormal ghost stories or anything like that. Actually, Christians don't believe that miracles are breaking the pattern of neat science. We believe that the miracles in Scripture are making a pattern. Mm. They're making a pattern to, to Jesus. So, in fact, they, they form a signal system. So, accepting that they happened is an easier position than trying to explain them all away individually, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Sure. It, yeah. it, you explain more by embracing them. So I'd want to say that with miracles, let's stop dealing with them as ex- in the Bible. Let's stop dealing with them as exceptions to what happens, but rather as things that form a signal pattern pointing to Jesus. Mm. That's and, very good. And you know, you you bring that point that Jesus is the focus, is, is makes Christianity unique, his claims his actions and you your next book coming out is the surprising genius of Jesus you you really point to his uh, the way he taught mm-hmm. and um, and you bring out one example in this book and I just got it um, but um, 
unpack that just a minute. Yeah, so about, it's, it's, again, it's a short book. So my last book was 38,000 words. This one's about 35, uh, which means it's 120 pages and you can read it in four hours. It's very brief. Um, and half of the book is about Jesus's longest story, which is a three-minute story often called the parable of the prodigal son. It's really about two sons. And one of the things I'm looking to show in that is how much amazing stuff there is in a single story that it is off the charts brilliant uh, relative to any stories that people tell today. Um, you can look at that on a surface level where there's very careful word choice throughout every bit of the, uh, the story. You can look at it in terms of the emotional intelligence shown in the story. But also, um, you can look at the layers of meaning it has in the story. So Jesus is said in Luke's Gospel to be telling this to um, tax collectors and sinners, scribes and Pharisees. Tax collectors and sinners, you don't expect to know the Bible very well. Scribes and Pharisees know it super well. In fact, scribes actually copy out the scriptures of their job. So yes, they know it really well. And Jesus speaks in such a way that uh, the uh, simple can understand, but also there are a whole load of challenges to uh, the scribes. And so the when he begins the story, a man had two sons. That can trigger a whole number of things. If you're a scribe, you're thinking, who in the Bible has two sons? And of course, the most famous person to have two and only two sons is Isaac. And there are analogies between that story of uh, Isaac and Jacob and what uh, uh, Esau and Jacob and what you have uh, in Jesus' story, because of course, um, Jacob, the younger son, tricks Esau, the older son, out of his inheritance so that the, his older brother is so mad that he has to go off into a far country and feed animals, and, he, and then he comes back. And a stunning, stunning thing from that story is that when he comes back, uh, when he's expecting Esau to splat him, and Esau's coming towards him with 400 men, and he's really worried overnight, so worried he's splitting up his uh, his. Uh, family and all the animals into different groups so they don't all get got at once suddenly Esau runs embraces and kisses him that very very phrase that Jesus uses of how the father accepts the prodigal returning and so Jesus there is making an allusion to that Old Testament text and saying look even bad guy Esau accepted his cheating younger brother and forgave him uh, so you've got no reason if you're a scribe and a Pharisee and you're resenting the fact that the taxpayers have scammed you uh, uh, to uh, hold that ag against them. So that's just one example of a bit of a story from the, the Old Testament. But also it uh, uh, relates to the story of Jacob and Laban. There's this phrase where the older brother angrily says, all these years I've been slaving for you. And that seems to map on to what Jacob says to Laban when Laban's chased after him and he says, look, I've worked 20 years for your daughters and your flocks and, and so on. Um, and uh, where the father uh, says to the older son, all that I have uh, is yours, uh, then that's a, a sort of inversion of what Laban says to Jacob, all that you see is mine. When the... Um, uh, older brother says, this son of yours who's devoured your property with prostitutes. That phrase, devour and property, is an exact map from, again, the same passage about Jacob and Laban, Laban where um, uh, Laban's daughters, Rachel and Leah, says, our father has devoured our property. So again and again, you see these ways in which the story, one, one maps on another. And then uh, you come on to something like the story of um, 
a man had two sons, reminds you of the story of Abraham, who has two sons. And Abraham is like the father in the family in the story because he actually runs. Uh, He's an old man who runs, just like the man in the story. Uh, And he runs and he greets people. um, And then he says to his wife, quick. So that's the first time anyone in the Bible says the word quick. That's the very first word from the father's mouth when the son returns in Jesus' story. So if you're a scribe, you notice when you first copy a particular word. That's the guy. He says quick. Then it leads on to getting a fatted calf. So that's the same sort of thing as you have in uh, Jesus' story. And it's also quite like the story of um, Adam, who has two sons, Cain and Abel. Older son, envious of the acceptance of the younger son, and then having God, like the father in the story, reasoning with him. So all of these sort of things you can see, and it's like the story of Joseph, where uh, suddenly a ring and a robe are brought out uh, to him by Pharaoh, and he's uh, lifted from the prison, uh, very similar to the way this son returns, and instantly the ring and a robe are put on him. And then uh, Joseph, of course, is the only son who's dead and alive again in his father's uh, mind. And then at the same time as you have that, you can see in the surrounding stories uh, that Jesus has not just knowledge of the Old Testament, but also knowledge of specific rabbinic stories. So there are two warm-up stories to this. One is the story of the um, lost sheep, one out of 100 uh, sheep lost. We know rabbis often talked about 99 and a 1. So this is a, it's not just a way that a Gentile like Luke would speak. It's a specifically Jewish way of speaking. We also know that rabbis sometimes told parables, not as many as Jesus. And in one of those, Moses is someone who goes and looks uh, a lot, finds a, a, a lost sheep. There's then a story amongst the Jews of a lost coin. That, um, and in that story, losing the coin is like losing the law. So what you have there is a, a dig at scribes and Pharisees very specifically that you're uh, not mm. acting like Moses, finding the lost. You're losing the law uh, like that woman lost mm-hmm. the coin uh, and that's all a build up to Jesus' story so it's an absolutely amazing thing because it brings in all of Genesis's greatest hits it also has um, many moral points to make to the um, scribes and Pharisees about how they need to be accepting of these tax collectors and sinners and it only makes sense if it comes from an absolutely brilliant rabbi from the land of Jesus. It can't come mm. from somewhere else. And we can even say um, that rabbis, uh, sorry, uh, parables are said to be particularly from, the, the particularly Palestinian, they particularly come from the land of Israel, the land of Jesus. Um, and there's another feature about um, parables is that normal rabbi parables don't have Old Testament allusions in their body. They might say something at the, about the Old Testament at the end, but they don't do that in the main story. But this feature of having biblical allusions within the main body of the story seems to be a specific hallmark of Jesus as a teacher. This doesn't come from anyone else. So all of those things just come together. That is fascinating and brilliant. And the name of that book, one more time, Chris. The Surprising Genius of Jesus, What the Gospels Reveal About the Greatest Teacher. That's, that's really great. Uh, Dr. Williams, a couple, couple more of the pastor, what they hear from their church member type thing. And another one I remember hearing, and I know I've had pastors say this to me because they've asked me this question, you know, how do I defend against this? 
how do you how do you respond to the the claim that the texts from other religious beliefs uh, are superior to Christian texts, uh, predate them, that kind of type of thing. How, how do you respond to that? Well, firstly, I think obviously there are some older texts. You can go to ancient Babylonia and find some things that are older than the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Bible never claims to be the oldest text. The Homer's Iliad is older than the New Testament. That's mm-hmm. just absolutely mm-hmm. uh, fine. Uh, we're claiming that these are the words of life given by God, not that they're the earliest text uh, in the world. Um, so uh, my aim is not to knock other um, uh, books or sacred books. There may be a lot to learn from those. Um, it's really to advocate Jesus mm-hmm. uh, and to say that this is uh, what, what you see in the person of Jesus is unique. There's nothing like uh, Jesus Christ uh, in any other belief system, and we want to advocate for him. Now, people say, well, how do you know that the other religions aren't true? How do you know Christianity is true? What we're saying is we believe that in Jesus Christ we have found the truth. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to look for you in a room next door because you're in the room with me now. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that I've got you here means I don't think you're next door. Mm-hmm. If you've found the truth, you don't think you need to go everywhere else. But that doesn't mean that we are claiming that every single thing in other books uh, that other religions might have, let's say the Quran, um, is bad or wrong. There, there may be many good things which come uh, in these books. Let's not say we um, agree with them all. There may be things we disagree with, sometimes very strongly, but our aim is not to knock that. It's simply to talk about uh, Jesus and how remarkable he is. And kind of related to that, too, and you cover this in your book on trusting the Gospels, uh, the Jesus Seminar was 70s, somewhere, like that, somewhere yeah. around there. Uh, oh, hey, all the stuff that the gospel recorded Jesus said is Jesus never really said that. Mm-hmm. So how, how would we respond to that one? So what I'd say is uh, I quite like Winston Churchill's speeches. He comes out with some great lines, you know, we'll never surrender, we'll mm-hmm. find them on the beaches and so on. But they're often very situationally bound. So they are great speeches for particular times. What Jesus says is far more remarkable than that. You take something like 12 minutes of text in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through to 7. And in there, not only do you have the Lord's Prayer, um, uh, but uh, you know, asking for daily bread and asking, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us, which is an amazing thought in there. Mm-hmm. But you get turn the other cheek, do unto others what you'd have them do to you, Judge not that you be not judged. So many of these we could call memes in a, in a modern sense. They right. are things that have just right. taken off. Now, how many political speeches do you know that within a 12-minute compass are able to spark such profound mm-hmm. thoughts? And it's not just that that's there in Matthew's gospel. You can have um, in John's gospel, the truth will set you free. People still quote that today who are completely non-Christian as mm. utterly astounding. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This is something Mahatma Gandhi uh, you know, uh, talks about. Um, Elon Musk recently talking about turning the other cheek as a really profound teaching. Mm-hmm. So these all seem to go back to the same person. If they didn't go back to Jesus, then Jesus had some absolutely amazing disciples who just were happy to give away all their intellectual property and credit their 
their teacher. It doesn't make any sense. It's far simpler to say there was one brilliant teacher that gives you the teachings in the four Gospels than to have four brilliant Gospel writers, all of whom were taught by some Dumbo or or, or wanted to credit someone who didn't have any original thoughts Mm -hmm. with these brilliant ideas. It doesn't make any sense at all. So uh, that's where I'd say the, the simplest thing, the most logical thing is to say this all goes back to one brilliant teacher. Okay, mm-hmm. I got a question. One question I get a lot. Uh, what about people who never hear the gospel? How would you respond to uh, that question of their spiritual condition? Well, what they need to hear, and of course, one of the things that Jesus commands people at the end of uh, Matthew chapter 28, as every Baptist pastor knows, yeah. is to go into all the world and uh, make disciples of nations, baptizing them, but teaching them to obey all that he's commanded. So the command was given 2,000 years ago, and if there are people who have not heard, then that's on us at the church because we've had the opportunity to take it to people for a long time. Secondly, um, in the thought that there might be people who seek but don't find, uh, I don't think that is the case. We have it already in Scripture that Cornelius the Centurion was seeking and an angel appears to him a dream uh, and and likewise uh, Peter has a vision to get them together so that he can hear. This is not very dissimilar to what you already get in the book of Joshua where the spies of all of the different places in the book of Jericho that they could have gone happened to go to the house of this one woman who was having heard what God has done she's heard the same as everyone else, knows that this is the God that she needs to follow. So God gets the helpers to the person who just coincidentally happens to be seeking after God. No, God makes sure that happens. If people seek, they will find. So those are some principles, and people would say there are stories today of people having uh, dreams and, and subsequently messengers coming to them. So I think that's... One thing. The other thing is when people talk about hell, people say, how can it be fair for people to, for God to send um, people to hell who've never heard? Well, what you can remember is um, hell is, in Scripture, is the very essence of fairness. So what, what it means is um, hell is uh, defined as God's righteous judgment on what people have done wrong. So uh, to say that hell is unfair is actually not to understand what hell is. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's defined as, uh, as, as just and what an omniscient God, all-knowing God, um, uh, the punishment that he would fairly give for what uh, people have done wrong. Um, that, that's very hard teaching. But the other thing is we have to bear in mind that there's no one who talked about hell more than Jesus Christ himself. But he never talks about it in relation to what happens to other people. As in, he says, he warns people, you, uh, you know, flee from uh, the, um, the torment of hell. That's what he says uh, to people. So when people say, what about that person? Um, he, he won't go into that. Uh, that's when you know, John 21, uh, John, the beloved disciple, is trying to get him to say about 
uh, uh, sorry, Peter is trying to get him to say what will happen about the beloved disciple. Um, and, you know, it's a bit like um, in the Narnia books where Aslan will tell no one anyone's story but their own. It's actually a very profound uh, insight there that um, when someone comes up to him in Luke and says, uh, what the question about, are few saved? His answer is, are you saved? I mean, I'm slightly paraphrasing. So in other words, someone's come up with this theoretical question about uh, people who've not heard, and none of the teaching on this is given to answer that theoretical question. So we have to hold on to the central thing about God. God is fair. Then we see in teaching, in Scripture, that sin is so serious that it deserves uh, eternal punishment. Um, and, and, and that seems uh, clear within Scripture. But for us then to put these things together and then start speculating about other people, I don't think is a step that we're supposed to make, if that makes sense. I think we are supposed to stick with uh, what um, we've been taught, which is anyone who has heard about the message has been warned. Um, and so... Uh, and then to trust with the fact that God will be fair. So I think all of those things together, there, there cannot be a question about God's character uh, because, well, we're taught that, that God wants all people to be saved. Uh, we've got a couple of texts on that, uh, First Peter, First uh, Timothy 2.4 and 2 Peter 3.9. Um, uh, we, we, we get a clear sense of, of God's heart, and we also see that... Um, God is absolutely fair, so he's the judge of all the world. Earth is, is going to do right. Uh, he has commanded us to go out. He has told us that anyone who seeks will find. And he's warned people directly that if you resist uh, uh, his call, you'll, you'll be judged with fire. Those are all teachings of, of, of Scripture. And what some people try and do is they... Uh, put a focus outside of those clear teachings of Scripture, and they end up with a wrong answer, if that makes sense. That's really interesting because that's what Jesus does in the Good Samaritan. Mm -hmm. You know, who is my neighbor? And he says, well, the real issue is, are you being a good neighbor? Mm -hmm. I think he yep, kind of yep, does the same yep, thing there yep. that you said right there. Hey, let's kind of wind this episode up. Uh, we've gone longer than we would normally do, but we really wanted to let Dr. Williams just kind of speak into some of these things, and I know our pastors will find this helpful. Uh, Dr. Williams, let's just kind of close by talking about uh, apologetics in general. It, it seems like in our culture today, as we get more secular, uh, whatever words you want to put in there, uh, you and I talked earlier about a piece that was written by uh, a woman in NPR or, or the Atlantic grew up in an evangelical church has left that and the 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 essence of it was she basically kind of grew weary of having to try to defend that Christianity was something that was good I think a lot of times in apologetics we tend to think oh that's you trying to defend that Christianity is true Mm -hmm. And now it seems like in this culture today, we've got to talk about, is it good? Does Christianity mm -hmm. actually help human flourishing? Uh, just whatever you would want to say about the role of a pastor and apologetics, just kind of talk to that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so I think apologetics is a, a good thing to have as a small but significant percentage of what you do. Right. So right. Uh, that, that's other people. People can make too big a thing of it as mm -hmm. if it's a, it's a, 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 a fix-all 
Um, we need to see reasons uh, to believe and to be able to articulate uh, those. Um, when uh, in First uh, Peter 3, people are told to be able to give a reason for the hope that's in them, that's not saying uh, be able to articulate a number of apologetic books. It's specifically addressing a number of people, some of whom may be slaves mm-hmm. at the time, uh, and saying you should be able to give a reason for the hope that is in you, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a, a narrower thing than being able to answer every question. Mm-hmm. I also think different people are given different gifts in the body of the church. Some people are more equipped to give articulate answers. But the church as a whole, within the body of the church, we need to have um, the ability to articulate. So I think it's rather than everyone having to be expert in everything, everyone needs to be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in them to talk about uh, Christ and uh, what he's done for them and that some of us uh, need to be able to articulate that um, uh, in a way which is uh, as compelling as it can be uh, for uh, people outside the church. And I think if you've got a um, a regular teaching ministry as a pastor, you should build in some apologetics, not make it too big a thing, Mm -hmm. uh, not set expectations too high, but just help people um, to to do that um, and, and to see that there are grounds for faith. Yeah. Well, Dr. Williams, thanks so much for joining us today. We, You've had a busy, busy few days here in the United States, and we're so grateful for you. We're grateful for your ministry. Thank you for everything you're doing, the books that you're writing, and you're making a difference for the kingdom, and you're, you're here you are helping Oklahoma pastors. So we really appreciate you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for being here. Chris, thanks for coming and man, helping me co-host today. Honor, man. Thanks. Uh, Andy's got big shoes to fill. So <laughs> appreciate you. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll uh, catch you next time. This episode of Feeding and Leading has been brought to you by the Cooperative Program and Oklahoma Baptists. Visit us at oklahomabaptist.org or your preferred podcast platform. Oklahoma Baptists, advancing the gospel together.